Hey there, welcome to the Lord to Death podcast. My name's Brett, and today I want to revisit yet another Bioware title set in space. And today, that is Mass Effect. Specifically, I want to go out of the story of the games and take a look at the First Contact War, otherwise known as the Relay 314 incident, where the human race first came into contact with an alien race, the Turians, and started a three month or so long conflict between the two. Not that I think it's warranted anyways, but there aren't going to be any major spoilers for the game since this all happened outside of the games and is referenced in the book Mass Effect Revelation, which happened a few decades before the events of the games. There's going to be minor spoilers for a point in Mass Effect 1, but that game came out in 2007, so I think it is fair game. That being said, if you're one of the few people who haven't played this masterpiece of a trilogy, then this episode is safe for you. And another quick side note before we start. Bioware released the Mass Effect Legendary Edition in 2022, which remastered and packaged Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 into one amazing bundle. If you haven't played the games, or if you played the originals when they came out and haven't played them since, I cannot recommend picking up the Legendary Edition enough. Back in the day, I played the second one first, then tried to go back to the first game before playing the third, and I just wasn't able to get into the first one. If you've played it, then you know that the first game was kind of a nightmare to play with janky controls, weird animations, and mechanics that just weren't quite developed enough yet. It was a fantastic beta for the entire series, but it was kind of a terrible game. The second game gave way to a much better playing experience, having built massively upon the foundation that the first laid. But having played the second one first, it made trying to play the first one just so much worse. Thankfully, Mass Effect Legendary revamped the playstyle of the first and second better to match the third game, which makes it a bit more of a cohesive, enjoyable experience. If you haven't played the games, then hopefully this endorsement and the little tidbit of lore gives you the incentive to take the plunge. It's one of my favorite series, and I think that it's one that everyone should experience at least once, especially if you love sci-fi. So EA, Bioware, if you want to sponsor me, I'm here singing your praises. I'll do it. Just let me know. But without further ado, let's get into the story. The first game is set in the year 2183, where humanity exists in relative harmony with the other races in the galaxy. Humans are just on the cusp of having a seat in the Citadel Council, but the other races are somewhat apprehensive because the humans are still relatively new to the faster-than-light travel and the galaxy as a whole. We're going to go back 35 years from this point to when humanity was blissfully ignorant of other life in the galaxy and had barely been to other planets in the solar system, let alone start to think about expanding to the entire galaxy. The year was 2148. 45 years prior to this, humanity had just landed their first permanent settlement on Mars, called Lowell City. On Mars, they had discovered traces of a new element which they dubbed Element Zero, or some called Ezo along with a small cache of highly advanced alien technology hidden deep below the surface of Mars, on the south polar region of Promethei Planum, which was left by the Protheans. The Protheans are an ancient race of aliens who existed far before everything else, and their history is a little too deep to go into here, but all you really need to know is that they left artifacts all around the galaxy for other races to find and advance themselves. Using the technology they found in the cache, they were able to utilize Element Zero to create mass effect fields, which led to the development of faster-than-light travel, which I'm going to just start referring to as FTL travel from now on, since faster-than-light is a little bit of a mouthful. And this marked the proper start of the space age and detailed exploration into their own solar system, Sol. A mass effect field is created when an electrical current is run through Element Zero, causing it to give off a dark energy that can lower or increase the mass of any object. Running a positive current through element zero would cause the mass to increase, while a negative current would cause it to decrease. 
And of course, with anything else, the stronger the current, the greater the effect. Using a low-mass field, ships are able to travel faster than the speed of light, as well as go in and out of orbit without too much energy exertion. And of course, this technology was used everywhere from ships to military applications, using the mass effect fields to create armored vehicles that could hover above the ground, leading to greater maneuverability and granting the ability to be dropped out of a larger vessel onto the ground from great heights without worrying about damaging the vehicle, like the Mako being dropped from the Normandy in the games. The high mass fields, however, were used to create artificial gravity fields that would act as shields for personnel, vehicles, and starships by pushing away debris or incoming fire. And I want to say that this is how they made artificial gravity on ships, but I didn't see anything about that, I'm just assuming. Mass Effect fields were great, but could not be used without consequence. The creation of a Mass Effect field generated a static electrical charge, which, in starships, would have to be grounded at regular intervals by either touching a planet's surface or interacting with its electromagnetic field to prevent the electricity from discharging into the hull, causing massive damage. And interestingly enough, there were people who could use Mass Effect fields that were generated biologically with enough training, and we called these people biotics. This electrical discharge in biotics took the form of static shock when they touched metal or other living beings. But that's enough about the Mass Effect fields. Humans were able to take the Prothean cache on Mars and translate its data to reveal that Charon, Pluto's moon, was actually a massive piece of dormant Prothean technology that was encased in a thick layer of ice. With the help of Mass Effect fields giving away to FTL travel, they were able to lead teams to Charon to uncover the relic, which turned out to be a mass relay. A mass relay was a transportation device that could connect to a network of other relays within the galaxy to make travel between solar systems much quicker. Trips that would take years or centuries with regular FTL drives could be made in a matter of days or hours, depending on the distance using a mass relay. The relays consisted of two 15-kilometer-long curved metal arms surrounding a set of revolving gyroscopic rings, which were about 5 kilometers in length. Inside the gyroscope was a massive core of element zero. When approached by a ship, the pilot would transmit the amount of mass to be transported and which relay they would be traveling to. After aligning with the corresponding relay, the ship would make a drive-by and be propelled through space by the giant core. However, this wasn't an exact science, and the spot that the ship would come out on at the other side would be somewhere in the general vicinity of the intended relay, sometimes several thousand kilometers away. And this phenomenon was known as positional drift. So when making a jump from the relay, you kind of had to account for the fact that you wouldn't be exactly where you want to be, and you might have to travel some distance to get where you do need to be. Many relays, like the Karen relay, were gravitationally anchored to a celestial body, which made it easier to track. But some relays were just out in the middle of nowhere, and had to be carefully tracked to ensure that they could be traveled too reliably. After humanity discovered and uncovered the Karen relay in 2149, they sent a few exploratory probes through the relay to no avail. As soon as they were sent through the relay, all contact was lost from them. And I'm assuming that's because of the distance that they were shot out. So, a fellow by the name of John Grissom led the first team of explorers through the relay where they took a shot in the dark, literally, and ended up in another relay, 36 light years away, and they called that Arcturus. It was there that they discovered that the relays formed a massive network and could be used to travel with relative accuracy across the galaxy. Being the leader of the first team to explore space outside of the Sol system, Grissom was hailed as a hero on his return as a pioneer of space travel, much to his chagrin. He wasn't in it for the fame, but for the cause. He seemed like a pretty good dude. Shortly after that in the same year, the Systems Alliance was formed as a representative body of the Earth and all human colonies. 
The Alliance, as it's often referred to as, became humanity's military, exploratory, and economic spearhead and based itself on Arcturus, where the Karen Relay first sent Grissom and his team. It's worth noting, though, that the Alliance's existence doesn't mean that there was peace on Earth. The Alliance was made and funded by the 18 most powerful countries on Earth, and there was still a lot of war, disagreement, and everything terrible on Earth between countries. But at least humanity could kind of set their sights on something else. After all, in the last few years, humanity had discovered not only a new element and a form of space travel, but the existence of life outside of their own kind in the technology left by the Protheans. In the next two years, up to 2151, the Alliance would set its eyes on its first colony outside of the Sol system, and discovered the planet Terra Nova, which, not very cleverly named, means New Earth in Latin. They would also start to create a massive military fleet to defend existing and new human colonies, despite not having any direct contact with any other intelligent life in the galaxy yet. This was more of a preemptive move, so that when they did inevitably encounter life, they were prepared for the worst, or prepared to be the worst. The Alliance fleet's home base was on Arcturus as well, an easily accessible and nostalgic location to the human race. For the next few years, humanity had one goal in mind. Explore the galaxy and activate as many relays as they could. And for that, they were going to need plenty of Element Zero. Element Zero had to be refined, and there were a couple incidents, the main and first one being in Singapore, where humans were exposed to a dust form of Element Zero, which caused those involved to suffer from cancerous growths and die. As catastrophic as this was, there was one silver lining. One of the victims involved was Caden Alenko's mother, and if you played the games, you should know who that is who gave birth to him later that year. Caden is one of, if not the first human, to be born with biotic potential. A couple more incidents happened, and more children were being born with minor telekinetic abilities because of their innate exposure to Element Zero. This eventually paved the way for training facilities that would focus on enhancing and training biotic capabilities. But that's a whole other story for another time. Space exploration went well for humanity for a few years, However, this era of unhindered exploration could only go on for so long. In 2157, humanity's excursions caught the attention of the Turians, who found human explorers reactivating an inactive mass relay known as Relay 314. Humanity was literally like a baby crawling around touching things that they weren't supposed to, as Relay 314 was closed for a reason. And they couldn't have possibly known that it was closed for a reason. And what they were trying to do was against Citadel regulations after the Rachni Wars, neither of which the humans knew anything about. Over 2,000 years prior, a Solarian explorer used a mass relay to go to a previously unknown system, and encountered a race known as the Rachni. As you might expect by the name, they were a hive-minded intelligent species of insect-like creatures. This Solarian was captured by the Rachni, who were able to reverse-engineer the Solarian FTL drive, and proceeded to construct a fleet of their own to expand into the galaxy. While they were intelligent, they could not be reasoned with. Any attempts by the Citadel to do so were futile, as it was near impossible to make contact with the Hive Queens who were guiding their warriors from beneath the surface of their homeworld. This started a centuries-long war, which was basically the galaxy versus the Rachni, which the galaxy was losing through sheer numbers. The Solarians took extreme measure to bring another species into the fold, the Krogans, by culturally uplifting them, which really meant taking advantage of their rapid breeding cycle to create an army that could potentially outpace the Rachni, which is an ethical nightmare in itself. Despite this being a morally depraved method, it actually worked. The Krogans were able to strike at the queens and push the Rachni back to their homeworld, 
where they were bombarded literally into dust. And after 300 or so years of war, the Rachni were officially declared extinct. However, living underground, it was hard to tell if there were any survivors or not. And, in fact, there were survivors that lay dormant for almost 2,000 years that went by relatively undetected. After their apparent victory, the Citadel Council declared that the activation of any deactivated relays was prohibited in order to prevent other disastrous encounters with hostile races again, which is why no race stumbled across humans for so long. So, humans were just doing what they thought was best for their expansion and colonization, without realizing that they were doing something potentially catastrophic. I likened it before to a child touching things that they shouldn't be, and that would make the Turians the parents in this situation. But clearly, the Turians were from the age that believed that any bad behavior was punishable by a good beating. Because instead of trying to make contact and negotiate, or inform, the humans that they were breaking galactic laws, they decided to open fire instead. The Turians wouldn't have done so without expecting to win, so they could just sweep it under the rug and forget it ever happened. But to their surprise, the Alliance ships returned fire and destroyed the attacking Turian vessels. This very quickly escalated into both humanity's first contact and their first intergalactic war. Two birds with one stone, I guess. And to the Turians, their actions were an act of policing an ignorant species who were violating a galactic law, but the humans would not see it as such especially because they were fired upon without any warning. This would, unfortunately, shape the human's view of other alien life for decades to follow and give way to extreme prejudice. Since there was no introduction and really no contact at all through the war, humans assumed that the ones who attacked them might have been Protheans at first. Curious about their identity, but not so curious as to mount a full-scale attack into Turian space, humans sent out probes armed with nuclear warheads to prevent the Turians from intercepting human technology, and also to maybe take out a couple of scouts along the way with the blast. The human fleet was relatively new, though, and didn't hold up against a proper galactic defense due to their resources being spread so thin. The Turians were easily able to intercept and destroy several scout and patrol fleets. You would think that this might destroy humanity's morale, but... It didn't as much as you would think, and there were still plenty of heroics from the humans, and they were able to push back and win several scenarios. There was one such event where a soldier named Taddeus Ahern was sent out on a suicide mission with a small squad to retrieve a data module against dozens of mercenaries inside Turian space. With basically no cover and maybe just a couple defense turrets covering a small fortified position, Taddeus and his squad were able to fight back the Turians until their evac arrived, against all odds. Unfortunately for Taddeus and the entire squad, his worldview was shaped by this incident and through his life he carried a grudge against the Turians, despite having a candid appreciation of the advantages of the Turian military. But the information that he was able to extract from that experience really helped humanity in the long run. After some time, the Turians were able to break through the Alliance lines and attacked Sangshi, a human colony which was established close to Relay 314, and settled in for an orbital siege. The Turians relentlessly killed soldiers from above and disrupted supply lines, which caused the people of Sangshi to eventually starve. A tough decision was made by a General Williams to surrender the colony, which only fueled more hatred towards the Turians. The Turians, being in a good position above Sangshi, were not without their own problems, though. Being far enough out of Turian space, they had to ship in all their food and supplies from a distance, and that meant that there was a severe lag in supplies being delivered. They got a little cocky and believed at this point that they had defeated most of the enemy force and were in a relatively relaxed state. The humans were able to take advantage of this and swoop in with a secondary attack force led by an Admiral Castany Drescher, taking the Turians by surprise and forcing them off-world. 
This retaliation absolutely bamboozled the Turians, and both factions were ready to prepare for a full-scale interplanetary war, which drew the attention of the rest of the galaxy and, in turn, the Citadel Council. Thankfully, the Citadel Council intervened before more blood could be spilled to negotiate a peace between human and Turian. It was only then that the Alliance was informed of the existence of the Citadel, a colossal space station that served as a sort of capital of the galaxy, and that more alien races existed past the Turians, who all, more or less, coexisted peacefully. The war came to a very abrupt end, and less than a thousand lives were lost on each side. But it wasn't all flowers and sunshine from there on out. There were strong political and cultural ramifications for the Alliance. Humanity's first contact with the rest of the galaxy was one that began in war and created a culture of xenophobia amongst the Alliance public. This led to the creation of pro-human and anti-alien groups like Terra Firma and later on Cerberus, who opposed humanity's integration into the rest of the galaxy, citing the first contact war as a reason why they shouldn't trust aliens. But because their first interaction with the rest of the galaxy was a small-scale war, which they kind of won at the time... The Citadel recognized the humans as a very militarily capable race, which granted them quick access to be considered for the Citadel Council. It was still plenty of years before they ended up getting a seat, but they were received fairly well for being basically infantile in the grand scheme of the universe. And the Turians did not get off scot-free. Being the aggressors in the First Contact War, they were forced by the Council to pay heavy reparations to the Alliance as a result, to which they refused to pay any interest accrued by this debt, which further increased hostility between the two races. Again, the Turians really thought they were on the right side of things. Those involved in the war on both sides harbored resentment towards the other race for decades to come, and the Turians had an anti-human group of their own, led by Saren Artarius, who nurtured a hatred for humanity for the death of his brother in the First Contact War. It's unclear whether or not he was actually personally in the war. Saren entered the military two years before the war started, but there's no mention of whether or not he was deployed. Despite that, we know that his brother was killed, and that's what fueled his rage. So whether or not he was involved is kind of irrelevant, since he already has his motives from his brother's death. In the decades to come, the relationship between humans and Turians improved, but not by much. Both sides were still largely apprehensive towards each other, but they allowed themselves to put their doubts aside for trade purposes, and even engineered the flagship of the Mass Effect series, the SSV Normandy, in unison. This collaboration helped to ease some of the tension between the two, but it wasn't able to heal the wound completely. The only minor spoiler for the game here is that in the game, if you choose to save the Citadel Council during the Sovereign Assault, the Turians recognize the good deeds done and agree to pay additional reparations to those affected in the First Contact War, including paying the interest that they had put off for so long. But I don't believe that this option is canon, as far as I remember. I'm pretty confident that the game's canon mostly follows Renegade actions, but I could be wrong about that. I feel like in these kinds of open-ended RPGs, it's kind of hard to nail down one right canon when there's an entire trilogy's worth of decisions that have to be cemented into one right answer. So I guess in canon, Turians and humans still probably hate each other. But that marks the end of the First Contact War, everything leading up to it, and the resulting fallout. If I were to expand on anything from here, I think it would be the Rachni War, and in turn the situation between the Solarian and Krogan. That's a whole thing in itself, which is pretty bleak, but very interesting and very politically driven. If you want to hear more about it, let me know and I'm happy to make an episode. And with that, what do you think? Were the Turians right in their shoot first, ask questions later mentality towards the Alliance? Or do you think that maybe the Alliance should have been a bit more cautious when activating the relays? 
You can find us online at Lord to Death on your favorite social media or podcast websites. If you have any burning questions about your favorite games, books, or movies, leave a suggestion on Spotify's Q&A section attached to this episode, or send a message on Instagram where I'm most active. Until then, remember that when life gives you lemons, make a spaceship and fly yourself blindly into deep space. You never know, your manic pixie alien waifu might be out there waiting for you. And until next time, see ya!